It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran, and Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett, and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Hello, world. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again today. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group, the show that helps you take your next wise step in your financial life. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm one of the financial planners on the show. I'm also the host, along with my friend and colleague, Joshua Gregory. Morning, Mike. Good morning. uh, Hey, we're also excited to be joined by our friend and realtor, Diane Bennett from REMAX 100 today to discuss this year's housing market. So whether you're a buyer, a seller, or just a shopper, we'll offer our interpretation of the current trends so that you can make your best housing decisions possible. That's right. We're excited to have Diane back on the show. Uh, Folks, it's housing season. That's why she's been invited with us. Uh, All that to say, this is your show. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, if you've got anything on your mind financially, reach out to us. You can do so a couple ways, wisemoneyradio.com, or give us a call, 574-222-2000. Lastly, Facebook and Twitter, at Wise Money Radio. By the way, you can get a whole bunch of content those ways as well. So thanks for participating. Uh, so, Diane, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thank it's, you. It's been a while, I think, maybe about a year. Uh, Diane's a good friend of mine. She's been a friend probably about a decade. I was thinking about, about that. that. Yeah, about that. Uh, she's my realtor and a trusted source for sound, objective real estate advice for me and my clients for a long, long time. She's someone I truly trust because I've seen her be trustworthy, uh, I, you know, asking her questions that might, you know, cross the line of, well, Diane, what's in your best interest or whatever. And she's constantly just said, hey, here's what I think is best. And and so it's for that reason that we invite her back to the program. So Diane, before we get too far, why don't you just introduce yourself again? Thanks so much. Diane Bennett with Inspired at Remax 100. And uh, we're a faith-based team of realtors and we work together to make real estate dreams come true. So we like to ask, what are yours? Yeah. And we've had many of those discussions. Mm-hmm. Even one recently, folks, you don't know this, but Cindy and I are uh, no, Josh gave me this look. Like I, you're going to break this news to me <laughs> on the air here. Gonna, I don't get to no, know a little early. We're going to talk about this. Cindy and I are just wondering whether we should move or put some money into doing some projects around our house. And so Diane, we, we're going to talk about this. Diane or professional realtor it should help you vet those decisions before you're making really big financial decisions like that. You're not outgrowing your current home, are you? No, Josh. Is that on. another I've announcement? Only, I've only outed one person on the radio about <laughs> being pregnant. You're not going to get that here. All right. <laughs> all right. So we get questions all the time from listeners as well as clients that go something like this. Hey, I'm thinking about listing my house soon. What should I start doing? And so that's a really generic question, but that's what we're going to talk about today for at least the first half of the show. And we're going to first talk about it from the from the sell side, then we'll talk about it from the buy side. So, Diane, for those in the listening audience who are looking to sell their house this year, what's the most important thing they need to be doing? Talk to a trusted, trustworthy realtor. Absolutely, first thing you should do, just like that's what you did even when you don't know if you want to sell I would absolutely talk to an experienced agent that's a trustworthy, honest agent. You're going to be able to make the most out of your sale if you work with an agent who sells 100 homes a year than if you do it yourself or anything like that. Um, in, in addition, when you're in the sell process, it's not just the listing and getting sold that's critical. It's getting through the sale process after you've 
gotten under contract with a buyer, that's huge. Um, yes, you want to prep the house, paint, clean, update. We often recommend pre-listing inspections so you can find out what things might come up on inspections later and get those done ahead of time. Um, pricing correctly is so critical, mm-hmm. and an experienced agent can help you do that. That seems especially important in the kind of market that we're in right now where you know house prices are surprising sellers often, uh, climbing much faster than anybody realizes. And so... You know, you, you might look in this environment and say, man, I, I could get this done on my own. You know, there's enough other houses for sale in the neighborhood um, to attract buyers to, to see mine if I was going, doing some sort of a for sale by owner. But how do you know that you've priced it right? And then even if you do get some offers on the table, uh, do you have someone in your corner to talk you through that process? Right? I have an active buyer right now that asked me that very question yesterday. Why should I hire you to list my house? I think I could sell my owner, Diane. And I said, because you can make more money on your sale if you have my help. You know, if you try and do it by yourself and you just think you're going to you know, save commission or whatever, you don't know how it happens every single day. I don't do my own financial planning. I go to Mike Bernard. So I, you know, I don't recommend that you try and sell your house. I don't care if you've sold six. We sold six last week. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we we were just kind of going to popcorn this question and, you know, Josh and I would, would provide an answer and, and so on. And one of the things you mentioned, Diane, in your list of what's the first thing someone should do, um, hits the, the, number one thing on my list, and that is doing a, a market analysis. Now, I'm, I am not a real estate expert, and so my opinion here is purely based on financial reasons. But usually when you're going to sell your house, you're thinking of, well, what, what can I get for this house? And I know a lot of people who pull a number out of thin air or just beneath thin air, which is called Zillow, and say, this is what I can <laughs> sell my house for. No, you, you need to do a market analysis. You need to talk with a professional who can run the different comps and so on. And folks, they it, it takes time, but they don't usually charge for this. And you can get the information that you need to know, okay, where should this house be priced. Is that even something that someone could do on their own? I mean, is is it public information, the you know, the sale prices on recent transactions and things? Because of the internet and technology today, there's a lot of information that buyers can collect on their own. There, there is more information out there for, for a seller themselves or a buyer themselves to collect. The problem is they're just, you know, those computers don't have the same knowledge that a realtor or an appraiser. If you want to hire an appraiser, um, you know, the, we just have experience. You can't just look at price per square foot. Price per square foot is is in, important mm-hmm. um, and it helps us to determine, you know, appropriateness. But it depends on what your upgrades are, you know, the quality of the construction, you know, the height of your crown molding compared to the house that doesn't have any, the types of doors that you have, the types of hardware that you have. I mean, it's just so much more than just price per square foot and a Zestimate is pretty much just that. They're just looking Mm -hmm. at... I mean, that is important, and you might have the best house on the block and and so many more upgrades that that price per square foot might pull down what you'd like to be able to get for what you put in the house. But it's still... you, You need to talk to an experienced agent that sells lots of homes and knows what it takes to get it sold and knows what it takes to get through the process. That's the That's really harder than getting it sold. Getting through the, the negotiations of repairs mm. is really a big deal. And there's so much more involved. So, like, you know, if somebody sold six homes and they think, I'm going to do this by myself, I've done this six times. 
you know, did you do it last week? Did you do yeah. it in this environment? It's it's different than it was the last time you probably did it. So how long is that process? So so say you've you've an, you've agreed on a price. You're selling your house. How long is the process typically between then and closing? Most common is about thirty days. Okay, depends on the loan type that the buyer brings in. We closed one in December in less than a week. We pended on Tuesday morning and closed on Friday morning. Cash deal. That's very rare. Mm-hmm. That really, I mean, even in a cash deal, it's usually at least a week, mm-hmm. and that was you know four days. So, um, but common is thirty days. A lot of sellers today are wanting sixty days because they want to, you know, get sold first and then have time to go look for a buy. So they want the buyer to take longer, and that's common too. That happens. Um, it's it's all negotiated at the time that you're negotiating price. You're negotiating the closing date. But lenders typically need at least thirty and sometimes thirty five to forty five days to get closed, depending on what type of loan it is. You know, that brings up a good point because often we think of the only negotiating point is the price, but when are you going to close? Um, are, are you going to stay in the house as a seller for a while, maybe pay some rent to someone? I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can really customize the transaction to fit for both the, the buyer and the seller, especially if you're working with someone who's seen it all before, right? Right. And my client last night, when, when I talked about, you know, if he tried it by owner and he got multiple offers by owner, oh, that's great. Well, how do you know really that this offer that's $5,000 higher is really a better offer than this one that's $5,000 lower. It could be that the $5,000 lower offer is a way better deal for you when you look at all the little check boxes that are on a contract and what all those mean financially and time-wise and everything else. So That's interesting because I've often thought, well, you're, you're hiring a realtor because of their gut, their experience and everything, but really it's their expertise in getting into the details on a transaction that means the most. Yeah. Uh, you know that if you're looking at selling a house, there's usually a purchase on the horizon as well. And we're going to tap Diane's brain about, all right, here's a few more things you need to consider when you're selling, but then also when it transfers over to the buy side. What do you need to be aware of? How do you do that the very best way possible? So a lot more to come here with Diane on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name's Mike Bernard. I'm in the studio today with Josh Gregory, as usual, but special guest Diane Bennett is joining us, realtor with Inspired Homes at REMAX 100. Uh, Diane is one of the sponsors of the show, so thank you to Diane Bennett at REMAX 100, her entire team, um, as well as the attorneys at Ledoux, Kern, and Keene for sponsoring the content of today's program. So housing season is underway. We're telling you everything you need to know about selling your house. We've got a little bit more to hit there, and then we're going to switch over to the buy side. What do you need to know? What are the trends? How can you do this the best way possible? If you have a question, reach out to us, 574-222-2000 or wisemoneyradio.com. Dot com. All right. So we've been tapping Diane's brain about what do you need to do if you're selling your house? We haven't explicitly said it, Diane, but it is a seller's market. The real estate market is is hot. It's hotter in certain areas, but it's, uh, let's just say, warm here in Michiana. Um, and we were just starting to ask a few follow-up questions before we shift over to the buy side. So, Josh, what additional question or insight 
Could we get out of Diane here before we switch to the box? Well, I don't, maybe this is um, just from a, a unique perspective. As someone who uh, often gets to sit down with clients, uh, sellers who are working with a realtor, sometimes they'll express their gripes to us. And one of them that I often hear and, and have to kind of tone down a little bit for my clients is uh, almost this offense that they feel, this, um, I'll call it a defensiveness on their style of decorating and things like that, because part of your role as a realtor is to help get this house staged and ready to sell at top dollar, right? You're trying to eliminate some of the potential emotional hurdles or style hurdles that a buyer would have when they walk into the house. And you know, you're you're naturally going to recommend that maybe they spend a little bit of money to replace those old brass fixtures with something a little bit more current. And I'll often hear people say, "What's wrong with that old fixture? You know, I it's it's been perfectly fine for the past 20 years. Why I'm not changing that?" And I have to kind of talk a little bit of sense into some folks that listen, you have hired this realtor for their expertise. They know how to get a house sold. Don't, you know, scoff at some of the recommendations. You, you have to remind yourself as a seller that this is not going to be your house forever and that the next buyer is going to come in. They're going to change things. I actually have to drive by my old house about every week on my way to my in-laws house. They live in the same neighborhood. And I've every time I drive by, I think, why did you paint that front door that color? <laughs> and why are you hanging that flag on that flagpole? Diane you know? knows. That you, I mean, you, you've got an eye for that, right? And being in all these homes. Right. And and it's very hard for sellers because it because it is home. It's very emotional. It is their home, and and I agree. They they think it's great. The problem is, when you go on market, you want to be available um, for the the majority. You want to be interesting and appealing to the majority. So you have to dumb down your flavors. And don't be 31 Baskin Robbins, but be just basic vanilla. You'll attract pretty much everybody can do vanilla. Uh, And if mm. it's vanilla, they can add some flavoring in it when they move in. Right. But if you are still, you know, I don't know, pumpernickel or some other fun, <laughs> I don't, that's not an ice cream flavor, is. but whatever. <laughs> you know, if you're something special, butterscotch, not everybody likes butterscotch. Yeah, good point. So that's fine if you want to be butterscotch, but I can't draw as many buyers towards your house if you want it to stay butterscotch. So it's totally up to you as the seller if you want to stay butterscotch. But yes, I'm here to help you make it vanilla. Uh, okay, I, w- I want to get the, to the buy, those of you listening who are looking at buying, but I've got two really quick questions, Diane. On the sell side, when is the best time to list? Because we are in spring. Is it is it jump on it now or do you wait a little bit? And then how long should people expect to be on the market? I know that varies greatly, but Very just greatly. a range. Um, list yesterday. That would be great. <laughs> or as soon as you because, can. Because the real estate market's already Because that the market is hot and you have a lot of buyers out there that are getting tax refund money. Uh, and so although it is a seller's market, it is still a great time to buy. Sellers are still fixing their homes up and pricing them correctly to get sold. And you can get great, great interest rates. So it's not a bad time to buy. Yes, the prices are a little higher than they were last year and a little higher than the year before that. But it's still a great time to buy. So you don't need to wait for that. And what was the second question? How long do you expect to have your house listed for? I mean, our house is going within 60 days or 90. I know there's there's outliers. Right. And it depends on the neighborhood. In some neighborhoods, it's a matter of hours. Oh, wow. And some a week. Yeah. Wow. So That's it amazing. just depends on the house. 
Okay, right. so one last question. How far in advance would someone want to reach out to a realtor if they know they're going to be selling their house on the horizon? You know, how, how, uh, how quickly would you want to be having a conversation with them so that they can be getting the house ready? I would rather talk to them now. I, instead of a seller um, getting the house ready and then calling me, I would rather they call me and let me help them. We have a stager on our team or they, there, are other, you know, there are other realtors out there that would probably do the same thing. Let us come before you do the work and let us help you spend your money with the best bang for your buck so that you're not doing that. Um, The other thing about time on market that um, you asked about time on market and and it varies based on are they staged, prepped and priced right. If they're if they're lasting longer on market, there's something not quite right. They might be too high. They might not have done all the repairs exactly way that we had recommended. Yeah. So that that affects your time on market as well. All right. So let's switch over to the buy side. If you're selling, you probably need to buy again. And some of you I know are thinking about buying your first home as well. So Diane, what's the number one piece of advice you'd tell someone who's listening right now looking to buy a home this year? Hi, hire a buyer broker. <laughs> I'm totally serious. Well, is There's... there ever a reason why someone shouldn't have a buying agent? No, you should not. There's a lot of buyers, and this is so sad. There's a lot of buyers out there that don't understand that they don't have to work with someone um, that's got the house listed. If they wander into an open house on a Sunday afternoon and they think, you know, they're supposed to work with that, no, you don't have to. And a lot of buyers think, well, I'm going to get a better deal if I work with that person. No, not necessarily. Whatever commission is being paid to the seller was negotiated way back when they listed the contract. So you're not going to change what commissions happen unless, you know, you need somebody representing you. And it's okay to have your agent represent both sides. That's okay. But you want them to be committed to you. So even if they're doing both sides, you want them to be committed to you as an agent. You know, the, the Briar Broker agent can show you any house from any listing agent. You don't yeah. have to, you know, they can't just like a Remax 100 agent doesn't just get to sell you Remax 100 houses. Remax 100 agents can show, sell you any house from any listing office. Yep. Yep. I, I truly was thinking about this before. I don't, I can't think of a single reason why you, if you're buying a house, you wouldn't have a realtor because there's, right. there's really no cost to you. The seller, like Diane said, has already negotiated that. So I would add some advice here. If you're looking to buy, and of course, of course, some of you are already tuning me out right now. Don't. You've got to fill out a budget because if you're looking to buy, most likely it's going to be a new payment, a higher payment than maybe what you were paying before or what you were paying in rent. And you need to tune into your budget because that budget's going to determine a couple things. Should you do a 15-year loan or a 30-year loan? And you've got to tune into your entire financial goal, your financial plan to see, well, affording this size of house, does it mean I'm saving less for kids' college or retirement or other things? You've got to make sure that this house purchase fits within the budget, which fits within your entire financial plan. And keeping in mind that the utility costs might be different on the new house, the real estate insurance, the upkeep on a bigger house may be a larger budget item as well. So to build out a comprehensive budget is always the place that a financial advisor is going to say you need to start, right? Absolutely. I'm going to tell you too, to go to your local lender. Don't Mm. just go online and find an online lender. I've got names of lenders that I work with all the time. And do you need to work on your credit ahead of time? 
Um, do you need to save up for your down payment? Those are questions that you can work with your local lender on. And the other thing I would say to buyers is stay calm and trust your agent. There's because of the whole multiple offer situation, there's sometimes, you know, you might not get that house. Oh, no. You know, trust your agent. An experienced agent is going to be able to walk you through if there's somebody else offering on the house that you want. And you need to not have fear. Just stay calm and trust your agent to know what their good advice is. Okay, so that's interesting you mentioned work with a local lender. I'm truly, guys, this was six months ago, I'm watching the movie The Big Short about the financial crisis, mm-hmm. and I get a text from a friend saying he saw a commercial for a mortgage company saying, press button, get mortgage. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like, it's, it's all happening again, folks. So right. yes, work with a lender so you don't overextend yourself. Diane, this time has gone really quick. How do people get a hold of you and your team? Oh, I'd love for them to contact us. We have a website, www.inspiredhomes.com. And our office number is 574-968-4236. That would be great. They could call us or email us. Wonderful. Diane, thank you so much for being on the program today. I know you need to run. We're going to keep talking about a couple real estate things and then hit more questions, especially Simon had a bad tax day. We're going to talk about what that means and how you avoid it. Coming up here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Good morning, folks. Welcome back to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm joined with Joshua Gregory. We had Diane Bennett with Remax 100 in the studio with us. She needed to run, but she before she did, she imparted some great real estate wisdom with us. And we're going to keep talking a little bit about the buy side of the equation, what you need to be aware of with your financial life if you're looking to buy a house here. I want to say thanks to Bethel College of Dalton Graduate Studies, as well as First State Bank for sponsoring the content of the Wise Money Show. If you have any questions, reach out to us, wisemoneyradio.com or 574-222-2000. Okay, Josh, so we first we're talking about if you're selling a house, here's what you need to do. First thing is contact a realtor, do a market analysis, and start working on, well, how much should you list your house for? What projects need to be done? Don't do the frivolous stuff, the extras, um, and and then work through the, the negotiating process once you get a buyer um, to make sure that you ultimately have a smooth and uh, orderly closing. On the buy side, we were just scratching the surface there. So if folks are looking to buy a house this spring, what's the first thing they need to do? Well, as Diane said, the the most important thing is to make sure that you have a professional in your corner with you who can help keep you from getting too emotional in the process. One of our big defenses to avoid emotion creeping into the decision is to make this in the context of your overall financial life. So a lot of the preliminary work before you're ready to buy a house, we would say is really financial related. It's getting your financial house in order first. Um, you know, I always encourage people to make an actual checklist of the amenities and features that they're going to want in a house and begin pricing the market to see if that is even affordable in your budget long before you fall in love with the, the dream house and the white picket fence and all that. Uh, the other thing you may need to also consider doing is just making sure that you have uh, your credit in good order. Diane mm-hmm. started to mention that. It's really important that you... Uh, are, are careful to not have too much credit activity in the six to 12 months leading up to uh, applying for a mortgage or buying a house. 
Sometimes, you know, opening an extra credit card here or there, transferring balances, doing any of that, that work, that can actually affect your credit score and make it more difficult for you to get an ideal loan. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And that's kind of a segue into one other that, that I actually had two more that I'm going to list really quick. And the first is, I don't know about you guys, but I watch a decent amount of HGTV, probably a little more than I'd like to <laughs> admit. I'm also on Pinterest too. Uh, oh my goodness. Sorry, oh, folks. All that. that all that came from my wife. But anyway, so on HGTV, usually they're, you're looking at houses and they talk about all of these remodel budgets and so on. And it's always said in the context of, your budget to buy your house is this. And if you can find a house cheaper than that, then you've got money to set us to, to do some remodels. Well, only if it's your money. If you're using the bank's money, you Great might not point. be able to get that lending. So if you find a house, if you say my budget is 250 grand and you find a house at 225, that doesn't mean you've got 25 grand to go out and and redo the kitchen. If it's the bank's money, they probably won't lend you up to that 100%. So it you just need to be careful about that, folks. So I would agree, as you're looking at buying, make a list of, okay, what projects are we going to need uh, to, to do to this house? And then make a plan, set money aside to be able to do those projects. And then the other thing, this is probably some of the best real estate advice I received, oh, 15 years ago, even before I knew Diane. And it said, if you're looking at buying, you need to think about selling this house when you're buying it. She talked about if you're selling right now, plain vanilla is your friend, but be careful about buying the house with the bright blue counters. If you like it, that'd be great. But then when you're selling, unless you're going to update those counters, you've got to sell to someone who really likes bright blue counters. Or if each house has their own kind of intricate details, they might suit you. But if it's really off the wall, it might be harder for you to sell that house someday. I think I would also recognize that in this environment right now, you still have the opportunity to get a reasonable price on a house and a low interest rate. That's a huge uh, benefit to you, ultimately. This might be a house where you would financially want to stay in for a while just simply because it's very affordable and the, the deal that you get on the next house or the next mortgage, I should say, may not be uh, nearly as, as advantage or as advantaged as <laughs> advantageous. There you go. Thank yeah. you. Yes, no problem. That's why we do this together, my friend. Uh, so, for many uh, reasons. So guys, this is real estate season. I We wish you the best in making a wise real estate decision. I would lastly remind you, so if you need a professional realtor, reach out to, to Diane Bennett and her team. And if you need some help figuring out the pros and cons, how much can you afford? How does this affect the rest of your financial life? Speak to a certified financial planner. Trust me, they're not just going to say, oh, you can't afford that. You should actually downsize to a one-bedroom place so you can save up more. No, they want you to reach your financial dreams. And a lot of those dreams come with having a certain type of house in a certain neighborhood. So a financial planner, certified financial planner, will help you get there. So reach out to them as well. All right, we're going to shift gears here because it's also tax season. And we've got a few questions from listeners about taxes, including the first one in my heartbreaks for Simon from Goshen. Here's his question. I wasn't trusting the stock market last year, so based on the advice of another financial professional, I cashed in my 401k I had with a prior employer. Now my tax preparer is saying I owe quite a bit on my taxes. I thought I paid the taxes when I withdrew the money. Is my tax preparer missing something or am I? Yikes. That, yeah. that one's painful. And 
you know, at the risk of being the repeater of bad news, uh, most likely there is a, a surprise that's being uh, kind of dropped right in your lap here, uh, unfortunately, Simon. And the, the issue is that you're right. When you uh, cashed in that 401k, they withheld 20% off the top. They're required to do so. And that is sent to the federal government on your behalf as a down payment on the taxes that you're going to owe. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think, oh, I just paid the taxes. Right. And that 20% may have been enough for the federal tax. Maybe it wasn't. It just depends on your overall tax picture that particular year. Uh, the other thing I'll point out is that they uh, did not withhold anything for the state. Yep. So much of your tax pain could be coming on the state return, I would imagine. Well, I would even argue it's really hard for that 20% required withholding on federal to be the right number. And here's why. I, Simon, you didn't list what your, your age is, um, and that's okay. But even if you didn't trust the stock market, if you're younger than 59 and a half, pulling dollars out of your 401k, not only are you going to pay tax on that, but you're also going to have to pay a 10% penalty. And so, as Josh said, there's a 20% required federal withholding. Well, in order for that to be the right number, if you're under age 59 and a half, you have to be in the 10% tax bracket, which is a very low tax bracket, and um, so that it would cover your tax and the penalty. And most most people aren't. So I assume, yeah, you might have a tax surprise on the state side, but I assume that 20% required withholding is just not adequate for the federal. Yeah, sometimes that tax surprise isn't always that you owe. It's just that you aren't getting the big refund that you're used to as well. Mm. You know, uh, the, the 401k withdrawal may have just mopped up all of that excess that you normally expect to receive in, in the spring. So there's really two issues here, Simon. So we're going to go down one more layer. And, and because last week we had an entire show where we focused on how half of Americans weren't participating in the stock market for this very reason, Simon. And so no financial professional should lecture you on whether your, your investment should be structured this way or that way. Um, within the context of an overall financial plan, you could determine whether staying invested or shifting to something else made sense. But there are two issues here, and I want to make sure that they're separated for you and anyone else listening. If you don't trust the stock market, you can change your investments within your 401k. It doesn't mean you've got to cash in your 401k. That's an entirely different decision. The cashing in the 401k is, is primarily a tax discussion. The investments, how the investments are performing, those dollars can stay within the 401k. That's an investment decision. So what what struck me here is that you made an investment choice that created a big tax problem, and that that was unnecessary. I'm sure the 401k had a safe investment option that you could you could choose. That's right. Not all of the investments in the 401k are tied to the to the stock market. Some of them are much more conservative. There may even be a stable account that you could put money in that doesn't fluctuate really at all. Yeah. So that's something to to keep in mind for the future. Also, you know, one of the warnings I guess I would uh, issue, maybe a plea that I would make, is that cashing in a 401k like this. Um, often may seem very tempting because you need the money or you're afraid of uh, investing too aggressively. Uh, Maybe something just comes up and you just don't trust a former employer and you just want to cash it in. But that is exactly the thing that drives so many people to run out of money in retirement or get to retirement and just be completely underfunded for this particular goal. Ryan's question is coming up about forgiving student loans. That and more here on Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. 
This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Wise Money is brought to you by the attorneys at Ledoux, Curran & Keene, First State Bank, Diane Bennett and the Inspired Team at REMAX 100, and Bethel College's Adult and Graduate Studies Program. Good morning, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in to Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. My name's Mike Bernard, and I am alongside Joshua Gregory on this fine Saturday morning. We're talking about, we've been talking about, whether you're buying or selling a house, what you need to know to make the best decision. And if you missed any of that, check out the podcast at wisemoneyradio.com or on iTunes or Google Play. Wisemoneyradio.com, you can submit a question there on the right, or you can give us a call, 574-222-2000. All right, we just finished a question from Simon about cashing in a 401k, what that means for your investments, what it means for your taxes. Um, Now we're switching gears. Ryan from Niles has the next question. Here's what he asked. A few months ago, you guys talked about the different ways to have your student loans forgiven. If there are programs to forgive student loans, why should I sacrifice to save up and pay for my kid's school when you can just use loans and have the government forgive them? I knew that question was coming at some point. Yeah, everyone's going to feel as though... Hey, why should I be paying back my loans when other people are getting a free ride out there, yep. right? Yeah. For, for starters, I mean, there's the practical question of uh, do you fit within the, the very narrow uh, constraints of these programs? Not right. everybody is eligible, in other words. Can I jump in and just share real quick? If you missed that, I don't, I don't have the exact uh, episode number right here in front of me, but we did it probably two months ago. So check back uh, on the podcast and and tune into that episode. But essentially, there's public service loan forgiveness. So if you work for a nonprofit, but they exclude churches from that, so it doesn't include every nonprofit, but you have to pay consecutively for 10 years, starting October of 2007, for 10 years. And after that, your balance can be forgiven if you qualify, you need to qualify. There's teacher loan forgiveness, which has a five-year consecutive payment plan, but your loans could be forgiven after five years. However, you need to teach in, um, oh, I don't have it right in front of me, but you need to teach in an area that uh, that qualifies. Not every school, if you're teaching for any school, doesn't mean you're eligible for this. It's only in certain areas of the country. Um, Perkins loan, you need to have a Perkins loan, um, and, and then that debt can be canceled. The one that most people think of, though, is the fourth one. And that is just purely called income-based repayment. However, folks, you need to make income-based repayment for 20 or 25 years. Most people need to move on in their financial life and move on to other goals. And it's hard to think that your payment for your student loans will be, well, determined by your income for 20, 25 years. There's an incentive there to make as little as possible, which is in conflict with the rest of your financial goal. Well, and the the rest of your wishes for your kids, right? I mean, you want your kids to be inspired to go reach for a better life for themselves, to work hard and uh, be successful to achieve. But these types of income programs, as you said, they create a disincentive for someone to go earn more money because then they may be giving up some of the freebies in the end. And I, I think just fundamentally, this there, there's a question of whether or not this is the message that you really want to send to your kids. Do you want them to 
inadvertently begin to believe this idea that you shouldn't do for yourself what you can get someone else to do for you. Mm. And that's essentially what a lot of these government programs do. They, um, they incentivize people to not reach for that better life. It incentivize people to stick their hand out and hope that someone else will, uh, will help them out rather than them taking responsibility for themselves. So the, the, the other problem with that is that flies in the face of the American dream and what the entire art and our entire society is based on is doing better for yourself versus what you just said. There's some moral hazards here, some t- temptations to say, well, I'm not going to do for myself. I'm not going to reach for more because I might be able to get some assistance. But those that do fit within those categories, you may as well really look into these because if you are a teacher that um, would qualify for some debt forgiveness, then um, you know this is a program that was created to try to give you a hand up because you've intentionally chosen to serve a part of the community that's maybe underserved and would otherwise have a hard time attracting talented teachers. Which we applaud. So so by no means are we saying if you qualify for one of these programs, you shouldn't do it. Right. We're just addressing Ryan's question here about should you set your kids up? I would, in order to, to, to do that, no, if, if you've got the ability to set an example, be a leader and save up or help um, shape their college experience by having them avoid loans, then yeah, you should do so. Yeah, don't manipulate your life just to go try to find some some freebies out there. All right, this uh, next question fits right in with that one. Actually, fits right in with the the last two about cashing, taking money out of your four hundred one k, as well as using loans uh, to pay for college. Here's Sarah's question: Is it wise to take a loan from your retirement account to pay for college for your kids? Sarah, that's a great that's a great question. It's a controversial one, one that we have pretty strong feelings about. But those strong feelings don't don't mistake that for us, um, you know, not empathizing with that situation. I've seen a lot of folks with that same question. Here's the idea: not every retirement plan allows for loans. Okay, so that's one that's one thing to consider because if you've if if you've made up your mind that that's what I'm going to do and you find out your retirement plan doesn't offer loans, there might then be that temptation to, well, then I'll just draw the money out and I'll pay it back in the future. Um, Then you've got less money earning interest and compound return. You might have some taxes as well. And so so that's, that's a dangerous approach to go. Well, there's also some additional practical issues. Um, you know, most school loans, whether they're parent loans or student loans, um, they are really a series of loans that you take every semester, right? So you borrow the money as you need it and you progress over that four-year period of time. With a 401k, uh, you may be limited in the number of loans that you can take, for starters. That's right. Um, you're also limited in the size of the loans. Uh, it, you're allowed to borrow up to 50% of your account balance or 50 grand, whichever is the smaller of the two. That's right. Okay. Yep. Um, the other issue is that usually you have a five-year payback as opposed to a 10-year, 15, 20-year on uh, maybe a parent loan or, or student loan. So uh, a shorter payback means bigger payment as well. Right. And in the meantime, you're really borrowing against dollars that were hopefully going to be productive for your future. 
and you're making them a, a fixed type of investment, you're only going to earn the interest that you're charging back to yourself, essentially, or paying back to yourself, as opposed to the market performance that it would have otherwise had. I know it's, it's extremely appealing because you're paying yourself interest. I, I get that. But Josh mentioned all of those hazards, and I mentioned one more is what if you change employers within that time while you're still paying back your loan? You often, often cannot continue paying that loan back if you're not receiving a paycheck from that company. And then sometimes those withdra- those loans can be counted as withdrawals or distributions. And so you need to be very careful of that. I'm going to slip one more question in here from Ted. Here's his question. I'm turning 65 this September. What do I need to start doing? I've been told some of the basics about what the parts of Medicare are, but it's confusing, and I just need to know what to do. Yeah. Um, so really, uh, first advice would be to reach out to someone who specializes in this type of, of health insurance. You need to begin educating yourself on all of those parts of, uh, of your insurance package. You're really going to be piecing together several different types of insurance to hopefully give yourself a, a fairly comprehensive protection when it comes to health insurance in retirement. Yeah. Ultimately, if you're turning 65, you've got a big decision to make. And it's a decision that you're going to live with for decades, most likely. Um, and and that's why I would agree with Josh that you've got to seek out the help of a healthcare, Medicare specialist to help you with this decision. And I'm just going to scratch the surface here. That decision is is it best for you to choose Medicare Parts A, B, D, and a supplement plan? Or do you enroll for A and B and then sign up for Medicare Part C, which also has plans? <laughs> and you can't easily flip-flop back and forth, and the government can change those rules at any time. So you've got to make that decision, what's best for you, and it is influenced or, or it depends on your cash flow and your deductibles, what you're comfortable with. But then you're kind of stuck with that with that decision. So you need someone to sit down with you in your specific situation, explain the difference between those, and help you make a great choice right there at age 65. And I think you probably need to start that soon. So, All right, that is going to do it for us. I want to say thanks one more time to Diane Bennett for being with us on the program today. Also, as always, thank you, Josh, and from the rest of us at Corhorn Financial Group, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated.